Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Continuing our coverage of COVID-19, there's new research out of China which is shedding more light on who are the most at risk from the coronavirus. We already know that older people are more at risk of severe symptoms and death, and even those with underlying health conditions. But what about children and the virus? How does the infection fare along men and women? And is it the virus that's killing people, or is it their existing diseases? For more on this, we spoke to Sharon Bagley. She's a science writer at Stat News. The vast majority of cases are, of course, in China where the disease started, and they therefore have the most robust numbers. So just very briefly, the vast majority of cases are in people 30 to 79, and breaking that down even further, 78% of cases were in people older than 50. Look at it another way, only 8% of cases were in 20-somethings, 1% in teenagers, and less than 1% in kids 9 or younger. So simply in terms of contracting the disease, we can talk about how severe it is and fatality in a minute. Older people are clearly much more susceptible. You talk about older people, obviously, a lot of them have underlying health conditions. A lot of it has to do with the strength and weakness of that respiratory system. One of the things that came up was a lot of them developed acute respiratory distress syndrome, which builds up fluid in the uh, small air sacs of the lungs. So a lot of these people that contracted this specific thing, they had an average age of about 61. And about half of the patients who developed that respiratory distress syndrome did die, compared to only 9% of patients who did not develop the syndrome but otherwise had COVID-19. So there you're looking at, as you say, a probably already impaired respiratory system. Older people are more likely to have pulmonary diseases, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, asthma, other respiratory conditions. And so they're already impaired. And therefore, when the virus hits and, of course, it lodges mostly in the lower airways, that's just too far and they therefore succumb. The ARDS patients, the acute respiratory distress patients, had an average age of 61. And those who did not develop that had an average age of 49. So again, we're seeing that severity of disease. So this is on top of just getting it, period. But severity also skews toward more elderly patients. Obviously, one that has to be looked into a little bit more is children. Why aren't children developing more severe cases. Some people have speculated that they're exposed to other coronaviruses and their bodies are constantly fighting those off. So maybe there's some shared immunity here, not completely, obviously, but maybe that could be a part of it. It's just younger children are not having severe cases. They're still getting it, but they're just not having as severe cases as some older people. That's right. And I think when people hear coronavirus, they either have never heard of it, or if they have, they think of it as the SARS virus, um, the, right. the one that circulated around the world in 2004. But in fact, there are four other coronaviruses that circulate and they cause usually nothing worse than the common cold, again, with the exception of people who are already have respiratory diseases. So these four other coronaviruses, again, much, much weaker, much less pathogenic, 
do have some similarities, both genetic and otherwise, to this new coronavirus. And a study out of China, it was a couple of years ago, suggested that young children who were exposed to these other coronaviruses might have at least partial immunity to this one. And then you might ask, well, wait a minute, if these coronaviruses were circulating in China, why doesn't everybody presumably have immunity to this new one, or at least partial immunity to it? And the answer seems to be, if you're exposed to something as a little kid, then your immune system is trained on it more effectively, more so than if you were exposed to it when you're 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever. So having been exposed to it in childhood or even infancy, that might explain why we're seeing super low numbers of affected children and certainly virtually no deaths in that age group out of China. What does the breakdown look like along gender lines? It seems that men are a little bit more susceptible to contracting the COVID-19 than women are. This is a little less clear than the age breakdown, which is absolutely clear. So out of China, a slight preponderance of men were developing the disease. On the other hand, the numbers out of Washington state have found that 55% of the cases are people who were female at birth. So that's a difference. And so one explanation for that might be that, of course, to count as a case, you need to come to the attention of the healthcare system. And this could be tied to the severity of cases in men versus women, i.e. it does seem to be the case that men are more likely to get severe disease and also to die from it compared to women. So if men are getting more severe disease, they are more likely to go to the doctor, to be admitted to the hospital, etc., and therefore to be counted. So the susceptibility rate in terms of gender is a little bit cloudy, but what does seem clear is that the fatality rates are very, very different for men and women. Again, out of China, 1.7% of women who contracted the disease died compared to 2.8% for men. So again, if you look at that, I think the explanation for the gender gap in just getting it might have to do with the fact that men are getting sicker from it. One of the main factors that leads to death in a lot of this does seem to be these pre-existing illnesses. If you have some underlying illness, it is more likely that the COVID-19, you might die from it or you'll get a severe case of it. And it could be a bunch of different things, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hepatitis B, kidney disease, even cancer, all increases the rate that you'll get a more severe case of COVID-19. And a lot of these deaths, it seems that Maybe you didn't die specifically from the coronavirus. It might have been an exacerbation of the existing diseases you might have had. And I think that surprised a lot of people, Oscar. So as you're saying, like, why would cancer raise the risk of both developing COVID-19 and having a severe case and of dying from it? In fact, the scientists in China found that cancer raises the risk by 3.5 fold, so 3,000%. And one explanation for that might be that many chemotherapies suppress the immune system, and that might make people more likely to get it. For other underlying conditions, again, I mentioned chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, a respiratory disease, obviously, that sort of makes more sense. But then you look at diabetes, hypertension, why should those make people more likely to contract it and also to get severely ill? from it. So that remains to be figured out. Again, the science is definitely still ongoing. But what might be happening is that although people are not dying from COVID-19, it's somehow making their underlying conditions worse. And the reason I suggest that is that researchers in China found that in a number of cases, the immediate cause of death was not pneumonia, 
which is what is causing most of the COVID-19 deaths. But instead, heart disease, stroke, high blood levels of potassium, which reflects kidney failure. So somehow this virus might, in already sick people, be exacerbating existing disease. Sharon Bagley, senior science writer at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. And with all these new cases on the rise, public transit agencies across the U.S. are ramping up their responses. The big secret weapon is bleach and other disinfectants. In New York alone, there are 4,373 buses and 6,418 train cars. These will be disinfected every 72 hours. The risk is still low over getting it on public transit, but it all depends on how crowded it is and how long you ride. For more on this, we spoke to Andrew Hawkins. He's a senior reporter at The Verge. Stepping up the cleaning, there's a lot of bleach that's being brought out from supply closets across the country and being collected by these transit agencies and used in hopefully a systemic fashion to make sure that these modes of transportation, our subways, our buses, our commuter trains are being cleaned at a more frequent pace than they typically are. So, for instance, the NTA says that they're going to be cleaning every single subway and bus and commuter train that they have every 72 hours. That could change as more cases emerge. But right now, they're sort of sticking to the schedule. Other transit agencies like BART in San Francisco says that it's stepping up its cleaning efforts, and they haven't noticed any sort of dip in ridership as of yet. But that could change also as we start to see cases multiply. But yeah, I think cleaning is sort of like the number one thing that these agencies are doing to respond, as well as providing a lot of protective gear and supplies to the workers, the cleaning workers, the train and conductors, the the bus drivers, who are really kind of on the front lines of this thing as it continues to spread. We're still learning a lot more about the coronavirus as the time goes by, we still don't know exactly how long it can survive on surfaces. Let's say somebody sneezes on a handrail or something, but best estimates looking at other coronaviruses and things like that, it can last anywhere from a few hours to a few days. So even with this 72 hour disinfection routine that they're having, there's still a possibility that it could be there. But just to caution everybody, There has been no outbreak in public transportation just yet. This is just how the cities and agencies are responding to this right now. But the messaging is important on all of this. And there was a couple of hiccups with Mayor Bill de Blasio saying, hey, everything's okay." And then like another moment, he's saying, well, maybe you should bike or walk if you can to work. Last week, the mayor in New York City was really trying to push the message, public transportation is safe, you can continue to use it. And then the week after, both the mayor and the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, came out with sort of a different message, which was, if you're going to ride the subway and you see a really packed train car arrive at your station, maybe wait for the next train car to arrive. I don't know how great of a message that is. Specifically, because it's not clear that a packed train car is less of a vector for disease than a packed platform in a subway station. And those can get really dangerous, too, if people start to really kind of overcrowd on the platforms itself. So there might need to be some tweaking of the message there. And it's very likely that they might try to tweak the scheduling of some of the subways and buses to make sure that there are more trains passing through to deal with some of these crowding issues. But epidemiologists still say that it's kind of difficult to gauge if you can get it by riding in public transportation. They say a lot of it depends on how crowded is it. Obviously, if there's a lot of sick people on there, maybe the chances increase. And then how much time you're going to spend there on either the bus or the train car or whatever it is. First and foremost, if you're feeling sick, if you're a person who's feeling sick, you have a few symptoms, not really sure what it is, 
you should probably avoid taking public transportation. It's a crowded situation, and that's probably a smart move is to just avoid doing that altogether. A lot of employers are trying to make accommodations for people to work from home. But at the same time, there's a lot of people who have jobs out there where they don't have employers that allow them to do that. So they're going to be taking public transportation to get to their jobs. I'm thinking also of a lot of like healthcare workers, people who work at hospitals, places that are really sort of like the key pieces of our infrastructure in terms of how we're responding to the coronavirus. So there's a bit of a complication there. And it is true that epidemiologists and infectious disease experts say that we should need to practice social distancing. If you've ever ridden a crowded four train through Manhattan, it's next to impossible to practice social distancing from anybody. So we're getting a lot of information and we're trying to learn more about it. And I think there's a lot to keep in mind. But at the same time, there's a study from 2011 where they modeled a possible influenza outbreak in New York City to find out how it would affect public transportation. And I thought a key point of this study was that only 4% of transmissions would occur on the subway. We see all these pictures of people decked out in these like hazmat suits and they have containers of some type of liquid with a spray nozzle at the end of it. And, you know, they're just kind of spraying things around. Is it primarily bleach that they're using or are they using other types of things to disinfect? There might be some other sort of antiviral materials that are being used, but bleach seems to be the predominant one. I think it sort of speaks to sort of the nature of COVID-19 as a disease, that it's very susceptible to a thorough cleaning, whether that's through hand soap or whether it's a transit worker with a hose blasting bleach into a bus. It's not something that can survive that type of cleaning. So that's kind of reassuring to know as well. Andrew Hawkins, senior reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Finally this week, a story about music plagiarism and copyright. Led Zeppelin is finally cleared in its Stairway to Heaven case. And this is years after the first lawsuit had been filed. And I mean, I think the song is from 1971. So this has been a long time coming. But briefly, there was a lawsuit by a band called Spirit. They had a single called Taurus. And they allege basically that Led Zeppelin stole the opening bars there to make a stairway to heaven. Briefly, before we get into this whole thing, I wanted to play just a little clip from each of them just so everybody can have their frame of reference. Here is a clip from the band Spirit, and the song is Taurus. Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. All right, so they're the two songs right there. I mean, obviously, just to the simpleton's ear, they do sound vaguely familiar, but the court has ruled now that they did not steal this from the band Spirit and the song Taurus. Devin, tell us all about it. So essentially, it boiled down to Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, who are the two frontmen of Led Zeppelin who composed the song many years ago. They were indeed accused of plagiarizing that instrumental song, Taurus by Spirit. And essentially, the original lawsuit back in 2016 came down to something called the inverse ratio rule, which analyzes the likelihood of Led Zeppelin having had access to Spirit's work. And it's really interesting because the court ruled that it was indisputed that 
Spirit and Led Zeppelin crossed paths in the late 1960s, in the early 1970s, because they actually performed at the same venue a handful of times together in that time frame. And Led Zeppelin also performed a cover of one of Spirit's songs called Fresh Garbage. Jimmy Page even had admitted that he owned a copy of that album that contained that song, Taurus. But obviously, did he listen to it? You know, nobody knows on that front. And that's where it boils down to, in the end, there was no direct evidence on one hand that the two bands even toured together or that the Led Zeppelin, of course, members heard the song. So in the end, it created this very interesting dichotomy of the reality is that even though access was proved that the bands interacted, the court and the jury could never hear or they'll never know what Led Zeppelin actually had access to. This was being watched pretty widely by music lawyers and artists alike all over the place. After 2015 happened and the whole trial over the song Blurred Lines, you know, mm-hmm. they kind of changed the rules a little bit going beyond proving copyright infringements on melody and lyrics and started including other elements like the sound and the feel, the vibe of the music. And that's what happened in that case. They had to pay like $5.3 million for copying Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. So everybody mm-hmm. was kind of looking at this to see what would happen. And there was a lot of other lawsuits that came in the years after that, just because they found that it was a lot easier to prove a copyright using other elements. So how does the decision in the Led Zeppelin case now impact other potential lawsuits? When Jimmy Page testified back in 2016 in what was by all means considered a very memorable and interesting testimony, if there were any fans in the courtroom, Jimmy testified that chord progression in a song is common and expected. And he said that chord sequences are very similar because he said chord sequence has been around forever. So it boils down to how exactly can one define what a chord sequence is and how chords can be laid out for future songs. And if they are laid out, how can one define a chord copyright within a song? And you see a lot of songs going forward now with top 40 artists who are sampling songs from the past and just flat out giving them credit in the linear notes. Like I can think of Beyonce during her Lemonade album. In one of her songs, she credited Ezra Koenig of Vampire Weekend because there were a few chords that were indeed similar. And even beyond that, music production websites and apps and, and software is so much more available to people now. A lot of times people are using same the same sampling packs. So there's a lot of similarities and a lot of different songs. So it's just tougher across the board. One of the interesting things in this case, from my understanding, is that the jury wasn't able to hear the music because part of how copyright rules worked, only the sheet music was copyrighted. So they couldn't actually hear mm-hmm. the song because you hear it and off the top of your head, yeah, they sound pretty similar. They go different directions a little bit, but the jury originally wasn't allowed to hear the music. If I'm not mistaken, what was ultimately played was cover songs, which, of course, is not even close to being the same. You have to hear the exact song. And that is one of the things that really led in late 2018 to a panel throwing out that 2016 decision because it ended up being on the grounds that the trial judge gave the jury rather incorrect instructions in regards to what constitutes copyright protection and copyright law. So in also not being able to hear both songs in their original glory absolutely could affect what a jury would rule. Devin Ivey, associate editor at Vulture. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again. 
That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.